0: Shattered Bonds, a podcast that tells the story of a family's journey to redemption. A family that has been torn apart by secrets, lies, betrayal, and violence. A family that has to confront the past and the present, and find a way to heal and reconnect. It's an exploration of the human condition, of the power of love and forgiveness, of the resilience of the human spirit. It's a podcast that will make you laugh, cry, think, and feel. This is Part 9, The Illusion of Time. Stephen Hawking has a theory. He calls it the thermodynamic arrow of time. According to Hawking, time moves in an irrevocably straight line. It doesn't look around. It never slows down. It just keeps going in one irreversible direction. But which direction? To quote Elmer Fudd, Which way does it go? Which way does it go? Backward, says Hawking. Time moves backward. Think about this. Imagine that instead of moving from past to future... Time is moving from future to past. For this to be the direction of time, we must imagine that the universe was at its most disordered in the beginning. Picture it, the chaos before the Big Bang, the scattershot universe drawing a deep, frazzled breath before giving birth to itself. Given this theory, disorder should naturally decrease with time. It's like a jigsaw puzzle. Open the box, shake out the pieces— there's only one arrangement in which they make a complete picture, a complete picture being the end. On the other hand, there are a very large number of arrangements in which the pieces don't make a picture at all, disorder being the beginning. Thus, the order of the universe increases with every piece added, and therefore time moves from chaos to order. However, says Hawking, all scientific evidence points instead to the conclusion that disorder actually increases with time. So then why should our perception of time be what it is? He suggests that it's because people are like computers. Our brains function in a way that requires us to see and remember things in an order in which entropy decreases. We can't handle watching broken cups gathering themselves together and jumping back up onto the table. If you believe that the universe was at its most disordered at the beginning, then you must see that it gets more orderly as time goes forward. However, if based on the laws of physics, of which ignorance is no excuse but similarly no crime, disorder increases with energy production, then actually the universe is becoming less orderly as time goes, and therefore we must theoretically be moving backward toward the beginning. Why, then, do we see time as moving contrarily? Because we have an absolute aversion to remembering our futures. Scott Henry sits in a strip club on Sunset Boulevard. The place is filled not with seedy trucker types, but young Hollywood hipsters, men and women. Strip clubs are the new nightclubs, the kitsch capital of ironic escape. Scott sits at a table in the back by himself. He has had a few more drinks than when we last saw him. Everything around him is watery, fluid. The egg of sorrow has cracked, you see, and everything is coated with a broken yellow glaze. It is 9 p.m. He has checked into the Standard Hotel stowed his bags in his blocky concrete room, thrown open the curtains, and stepped out onto the balcony. Below him lay the neon-blue astroturf of the pool area, and beyond that, the dense southern sprawl of Los Angeles. A silver beanbag chair slumped near the railing at his feet. He stood for a second, breathing in the warm air of freedom. Scott loves Los Angeles, the blatant lie of it. We can be young and rich and beautiful forever, L.A. is all about the suspension of disbelief. From impossible movie pitches to houses stilted up on fault-ridden hills, the whole city is based on an idea that anything you dream up can come true. But his room was small and concrete, and sitting in it he found himself with far too much time to think. So he called a cab and came here to a strip club, where for a hundred dollars a half-naked woman will tell you any lie you want to hear. It doesn't have to be true— It just has to sound true. Recently, Scott has been reading about the German mathematician Kurt Gödel, who suggested that a mathematical proposition could be true even if there was no possible way of proving it. What do you believe is true, even though you cannot prove it? Gödel called it his first incompleteness theorem. It made other mathematicians uneasy, this idea that there are no absolutes. What is math, after all? if not a kind of rigidly structured religion, a promise of order and rationality in an otherwise crazy universe. In 1940, Gödel left Germany and emigrated to America. He found himself at Princeton University, teaching alongside Albert Einstein. Einstein, of course, had coined the theory of relativity, which stated simply that there is no such thing as absolute time. He suggested that whether an observer deems two events to be happening at the same time depends on his state of motion. In other words, there is no universal now. The flow of time depends on motion and gravity. The division of events into past and future is relative. Gödel used to walk home with Einstein every day after school. Picture two old grandfathers strolling down tree-lined streets dressed in fraying tweed. He said... Your theory of relativity is interesting, but personally I don't believe that time exists at all. Einstein was intrigued. Tell me more, he said. So Gödel showed him an epic equation, pages and pages of letters and numbers. He painted a picture of a universe that was not expanding, but rotating. An observer of this universe would see all the galaxies slowly spinning around him. This spinning, the equation showed, mixed up space and time made them interchangeable. By completing a sufficiently long round trip in a rocket ship, a resident of Girdle's universe could travel back to any point in his own past. The equation it took to prove this would look like a wall of gibberish to you and me, but Girdle saw it as a code, a code that proved once and for all that time itself does not exist. A past that can be revisited has not really passed. Time, like God, is either everywhere or nowhere. If it disappears in one possible universe, it is undermined in every possible universe, including our own. This is the beauty of theoretical physics. Past a certain point, science becomes a question of faith. It is a question of creating equations that prove your theory, while at the same time understanding that such proof can only ever be theoretical. Now, in what you call the present, Scott sits in Hollywood, California and the strippers who wander the floor with their boxy little purses are buxom, oversized. They are impossible blondes and bottle redheads, part-time porn stars. Before Kate, it never would have occurred to him to come to a strip club, but tonight it was all he could think about. He is like a criminal returning to the scene of the crime. He gives the strippers money, and they laugh at his jokes, tell him he's sexy, tell him he's hysterical, a fucking riot. He sits in the dark funk of the club, enjoying his anonymity, enjoying the fact that none of these people are related to him. His definition of the word family goes as follows. Family. fam i Noun. One. A cage or similar restraining device often used in the practice of torture. For example, Senator John McCain spent seven years in a Vietnamese family, eating bugs, while all feelings of self-worth were beaten out of him by his parents. See, parents. 2. A highly debilitating congenital disease, slow-acting but almost always paralyzing. Symptoms include, but are not limited to, mood swings, irritability, an inability to form close bonds, neediness, increased emotional stupidity, unexpected spikes of intense anger, shortness of breath, feelings of worthlessness, feelings of moral superiority, fear of intimacy fear of abandonment, increased promiscuity and or frigidity, an unnameable, unstoppable yearning, an unnameable, unstoppable dread, unexpected periods of intense desire followed by unpredictable decreases in caring, a simultaneous desire for and hatred of small children, puppies, and seals, illogical feelings of self-pity and resentment, and a deep-seated desire to be held. Right now he's talking to Candy, a busty brunette, She sits on his lap, dressed in pink hot pants and a tiny black bra. "'So what do you do?' she asks him. "'Are you in the movie business? Can you help me?' "'I listen to other people's phone calls,' he tells her. "'Like a voyeur? "'You know how you call your bank and they say this call may be monitored for quality assurance? "'That's me.' She squirms a little in his lap. She smells like waffles. It is the universal stripper's scent— the artificial odor of sweet breakfast items and tropical fruits. I'm an actress, she says. Of course, who isn't? You're beautiful, he tells her. You're sweet, I like you. But who isn't beautiful in this town? He has his hand on her hip, and the warmth of it, the strength of the bone, the soft, yielding flesh, makes him want to cry. She's right, of course. Beauty is the currency of this place. It's like living in a golden city. You feel rich, and yet how much can gold really be worth when your sidewalk is made of the stuff, your toilet? Do you want to dance? Candy asks him in a sultry baby doll voice. Yes, please, he says. She stands, takes off her top. Her breasts are impossibly round. She starts to move to the music, brushing against him, her hands on the arms of his chair. Her hair falls in his face. He is a warm, sunny field on a hot summer day. He is a Long Island beach in August, waves lapping gently at the shore. She moves her face beside his. He feels the electric charge of her skin. She kisses his cheek. It feels so real, like love. The hum of her breath on his face is intimate, the way her hands move against his chest She presses her tits against his face, and for a moment he is lost in the deep well of her chest, breathing her in, her warmth, the real human smell of her, his mouth an inch from her heart. It occurs to him that the space between a stripper's breasts is probably the most germ-ridden inch on the face of the earth. Then she turns and sits on his lap, grinding herself against him, undulating her hips, he gets hard from the friction, the sight of the smooth plane of her back, the tattoo above her ass, a crucifix, the way her thighs are pressing down against his legs. He has lost his faith in people. Nobody is who they say. Nobody tells the truth. He hears it on the phone every day, the way people act on hold. Honest. Human. And the artifice that comes over them when the operator comes on the line. Fake. Plastic. Plastic. Nobody says anything real. Nobody wants to be vulnerable. He is so tired of being disappointed, so tired of wishing for things that don't happen. What's the point of living if you're afraid to hope? He is exhausted by his own emotions, his own needs. Nothing lasts. Women leave. Fathers die. And how do you plan a life when you can't count on anything? It's like living in a city where every day the landscape changes— Each morning you wake to find yourself in a strange house on a strange street in a strange town. Every night the streets shift while you sleep, avenues turning to alleys, rivers turning to mountains. How can they expect you to keep a job when the office keeps moving, when your home isn't where you left it? Not to mention that every day the people you see are different. They act like they know you, sure. But it is just an act. Familiar faces, but inside, who knows? This is it, he thinks the bottom, the lowest point. He has no idea how far he still has to fall. He thinks, we spend so much time looking for love, but none of it matters. The truth is, we're all alone. He's embarrassed by these thoughts, the clichéd pathos they represent, and yet they're not thoughts. They're nodules in his chest, brittle calcium deposits forming on the inside of his rib cage. They are tumors, changing the architecture of his body. The stripper turns and places her left breast against his lips. The nipple is hard, fat. It is a sexual gesture, but also strangely maternal. She touches his hair. The beat of the music is in his chest, the tribal rhythm of drum and bass, He wants to throw his arms around this woman, to take her to his hotel and lose himself in the lie of her. He's sure if he offered her enough money she would go. He thinks of it, going to the ATM, emptying his account for her. Right now it feels so important to make a connection, to feel the truth of another body pressed against his. Is that so wrong? He's always thought men who go to strip clubs to be deviants, pathetic, And yet there's something honest about getting what you want. Something safe about reducing the interactions of men and women to a question of money. Here, he doesn't have to wonder if Candy likes him or not. Here, it is understood. Money buys you time. It buys you a conversation, a touch. It buys you a blowjob in a private booth. As long as you have money at a strip club, there is love for you, redemption. The song shifts. Candy stands, refastens her top. He hands her two twenties. Thanks, lover, she says. His cell phone vibrates in his pocket. He takes it out, looks at the caller ID. It's his brother. He checks the time. 11.30. Hello, he says, plunging his left index finger into his ear, straining to hear. It's me, his brother says. We've got a problem. What? What? a problem, we've got a problem. Scott looks up at Candy, but she's already looking around the room searching for her next customer. What's going on, he says. The hotel just called me, says David. They're throwing her out. What do you mean? She's 63. Who throws a 63-year-old woman out of a hotel? They caught her smoking with her oxygen machine. She could have blown up the hotel, the fucking Hotel Bel Air. Scott closes his eyes, smoking with her oxygen machine. There are cleaner ways to kill yourself, he thinks, but this one has a certain inventive charm. He starts laughing and for a minute can't stop. Fucking perfect, he thinks. Death by explosion. Of course, you take a lot of other people with you, too. But then that's always been his mother's approach. If I'm cold, everybody's cold. If I'm dying in a fire, everybody's dying in a fire. She's in the lobby with her stuff, says David. Apparently some security goon is looming over her, making sure she behaves. So go get her, Scott says. What do you want from me? I can't, says David. Tracy's sick. Something she ate at lunch, she thinks. She's throwing up. Can you hear? Scott opens his eyes. A stripper with an impossibly flat stomach stops in front of him, slips her hand into her G-string, and gives him a look that would melt a glacier. Behind her, there's a black woman on stage with an ass like a pair of hams. Through the cell phone, Scott's precision hearing can identify exactly what Tracy ate for lunch today from the way she's heaving. A niçoise salad and two glasses of Chardonnay. I'm busy, he says. Doing what? His brother wants to know. Scott pauses. The black woman jumps up, grabs the pole, and slides down with her legs jutting out at a 45-degree angle. It would take too long to explain, he says. His brother makes an exasperated sound. This is how it always is with them. The tug of war. You go. No, you go. They might as well play rock, paper, scissors for who gets to take care of their mother. She's sitting in the lobby, David says. It's past her bedtime. Let her rot. Yeah, says David. Clearly, that's not an option. Scott stands grabs his jacket he is furious volcanic what's the address just grab a cab they'll know the hotel bel-air i called and they can take her at the standard that's where you're staying right i don't think we can trust her on her own scott takes a deep breath through his nose lets it out so i get her the stairs we'd take her but yeah whatever you owe me so big don't be like that i do a lot Scott can hear the anger in his brother's voice. Don't push me. I know I'm pussying out, but don't call me on it. Scott wants to reach through the phone line and strangle him, wants to take a cab to his brother's house and climb into bed with the kids. If you're going to act like my daddy, he thinks, I should at least be able to act like your child. He exits the strip club, leaving behind the myth of beauty, the myth of availability, the myth of freedom through sex. He stands on Sunset Boulevard and looks for a cab. Muscle cars troll slowly down the four-lane blacktop. One of the bouncers approaches him. You need a cab? Scott nods. This guy is six foot four, with shoulders like a highway overpass. What about a limo? traveling style? Scott looks over. There are three black stretches parked in the lot, the driver sitting on folding stools reading the paper. A limo he says. The bouncer has a ponytail and a 25-inch neck. Fifty bucks, they'll take you anywhere you want to go. Scott nods. His heart is a red-hot bullet, a fist. Sounds good, he says. Let's do it. The bouncer gestures, and one of the drivers stands, folding the paper and putting it under his arm. Scott walks over. The driver opens the back door. Scott slips inside. He feels giddy, out of control. The seats are leather. There's a bar, a TV, a moonroof. The car smells like air freshener. Scott can only imagine how many high school sweethearts have had sex back here. The tinted interior partition rolled up. How many strippers have tumbled from the club clutching rich men with cowboy hats and then fallen into this very back seat? How many drunken bachelorette parties have raged in the elongated rear of this limo? the dark cavity packed with smart, young, professional women all standing on the seat and flashing their tits to the passing city streets. The driver climbs into the front seat. "'Where to?' he says. Scott stretches out his legs. He is buzzed, feels reckless, and so far off the map that even the word map sounds made up. There are no words for this feeling. It is a Red Bull overdose— a crystal meth bender with a bottle of NyQuil thrown in. Two stops, he says. The Hotel Bel Air, and then we're going to the Standard back here on Sunset. The driver puts the car in gear, pulls out into traffic. He says his name is Lou. This fucking town, he says. Everybody thinks they're such hot shit. Like all those people who believe in past lives, how they're always Cleopatra or Teddy Roosevelt or some such shit well i'm nobody says scott me too nobody i've been nobody my whole life and you know what it suits me just fine we can't all be rocket scientists you know can't all be brad pitt who wants to be famous anyway sounds awful people taking pictures of you all the time i mean don't get me wrong i'm sure the pussy is incredible world class believe me i drive enough of those fuckers in my car to know women melt for that shit celebrity Get a celebrity in my car, the whole thing smells like cunt for a week. Rich guys get laid, too, and pretty well. But nothing beats a famous face. Even these reality show assholes get pussy like you wouldn't believe. Scott sits in the back wondering what it would be like to be rich. Insulated. This is what money does. It pads the world around you, dulling the edges. Getting rich, having rich friends, surrounding yourself with comfort, It's like baby-proofing your house. You put plastic in the electrical outlets, a lock on the toilet. You are creating the illusion of security. In front, Lou goes on and on. He flattens his vowels and grunts as he changes lanes. The limo moves down the strip, past the House of Blues, the Viper Room, Sunset Boulevard changing from commercial real estate to residential, the street widening, the shops become estates, The median turns green, leafy. Scott dozes for a minute, exhausted. He dreams of faraway beaches, of single-family houses, dinner on the table at six, apple pie on the windowsill. Hey, buddy, says Lou. We're here. Scott wakes, disoriented. They're in the secluded parking lot of the Hotel Bel Air. A footbridge leads across a stream to the entrance of the building. A valet steps up, opens the door. Scott steps out. Good evening, sir. Checking in? No, I'm here to pick someone up, he says. My mother. Very good, sir. Just go to the lobby. Someone will help you there. Scott nods, turns to the driver. I'll be right back. He crosses the footbridge. There's a pond below, swans floating under soft outdoor lights. The grounds must cover several acres, with footpaths leading off into the woods. The hotel itself is pink, sprawling, ornate. Scott walks into the lobby. A bellman approaches. Can I help you, sir? Scott looks around. His mother is sitting in a puffy chair, luggage at her feet, looking sleepy, disoriented. Never mind, he says. I see her. He walks over. A hotel manager in a designer suit moves to intercept him. Hey, Mom says Scott. How's your night going? Because I got to tell you, I'm having a blast. She blinks up at him, trying to place the face. She looks spooked, like a baby squirrel, eyes wide. The manager joins them. Are you here for Mrs. Henry? He asks politely. He probably majored in polite at U of M. Scott nods. Can you give me a sense, he asks the manager, of what the problem is? His mother, having focused finally, having come to terms with who he is and what he represents, looks up at Scott with immense gratitude, hope. Finally, after all these months, someone has come to protect her, save her. Here is her son, her knight in shining armor. Mrs. Henry was smoking in her room, says the manager. A non-smoking room. But apparently she's on oxygen as well, and, well, we just can't have that. The risk to our guests... This is an historic building. He actually says, an historic building. Scott wants to pull the pencil-thin mustache from his face hair by hair. I'm sure it is, says Scott. He turns to Doris. Is it true, Mom? Were you smoking? His mother looks up at him. It's the fucking Spanish Inquisition, she says. I tried to tell them I don't smoke. I can't. Look at me. Mom, says Scott. The oxygen was off, she said. I had the window open. Scott turns to the manager. I'm really sorry. I'll get her out of your hair. He helps his mother to her feet. It's clear she doesn't want to go. It's the middle of the night, she says, throwing an old lady out of a hotel. It's criminal. Come on, says Scott. Save it for the judge. He holds her arm, helps her walk. She can't weigh more than ninety pounds soaking wet. Her hair is like straw. The bellman follows them to the door, carrying her luggage. They exit the building, cross the footbridge. Lou is standing by the limo. He sees them, opens the back door. What's this? Doris wants to know. She's panting, out of breath. Nothing but the best for my mother, says Scott, helping her inside. The bellman loads the bags into the trunk. Scott and his mother sit side by side in the palatial expanse of the back seat. A limo, she says, exhaling through pursed lips. What do you think, says Scott? Should we go to Vegas, hit a few casinos? Do you smell waffles, his mother asks. It's the air freshener, says Scott, picturing Candy's oversized breasts, the way she ground her ass against him. No, says Doris, sniffing. It's coming from you. Sniff, sniff. Have you been eating waffles? Lou climbs in, starts the car. The standard, you said? Please, says Scott. They drive in silence for a minute. Where's your brother? Asks Doris. I thought he would come. Tracy's sick, apparently. Something she ate. It wouldn't surprise me the way she cooks. At lunch, they're saying. At a restaurant. Well... I still don't see why they couldn't come and pick me up. You saw the size of that house. You're telling me there's not a room I could sleep in? There are stairs, says Scott. All the bedrooms are on the second floor. So I sleep on the sofa. They don't want me is what it is. I don't want you. Who would want you? All you do is complain. She pouts, looking picked on. I do not. Listen, Ma, says Scott. Please... It's been a long day. Let's just get to the hotel and check you in, and we'll talk about it tomorrow. She pouts for another minute. Up front, Lou puts on the radio. Golden oldies. The night is beginning to feel like a Billy Wilder movie. Soon there'll be a dead monkey and a man in a suit floating face down in the pool. Is it nice, this hotel? Asks Doris. It's where you're staying, right? It's fine. It's... I think it's a little young for you, but... What are you saying, I'm old? Yes, Mom, that's what I'm saying, you're old. She looks out the window, satisfied. Doris doesn't trust a conversation where somebody's not picking a fight with somebody else. Your father and I came to L.A. sometimes when he had business, she says. We always stayed at the Beverly Hills Hotel. I liked to sit by the pool and have a salad or go shopping. He would come back from a meeting in his suit and knit tie. Remember those knit ties? And we would have a drink and there were palm trees, and it all seemed so beautiful. Scott sighs, watches the trees go by outside the window. I'm trying to picture the future for me, says Doris, but I just can't see it. They reach the hotel. It's midnight on a Tuesday night, and the place is packed, cars lined up in the driveway. Scott steers his mother through a crowd of twenty-year-old models in hip-hugging jeans, past scruffy young men in velvet suit jackets and trucker's caps. He feels every eye in the place turn to them. A thirty-five-year-old man with his shambling, out-of-breath mother. Looking up, he realizes he forgot to warn his mother about the half-naked woman in the display case behind the front desk. The bored, sometimes sleeping model actress, lying behind glass in her underwear, reading a book or checking her email. Scott saw her there earlier and stood dumbstruck. Beautiful women are so plentiful in this town, he thought. They are literally being used for decoration, like a table, a lamp. Is that a mannequin? His mother wants to know. Scott rushes through the check-in process. The lobby is filled with the stutter beats of tomorrow's techno. Waiting for the clerk to run his mother's credit card, Scott glances nonchalantly around the lobby. His eyes linger on the faces of women he thinks he could love, like a baby bird looking to imprint. The bellman takes the bags upstairs. Scott helps his mother to her room, sets up her oxygen machine, unraveling the long plastic line, plugging the squat boxy device into the wall. Then he kneels and starts going through her bags. What are you doing? His mother wants to know. Looking for cigarettes. He digs through the main compartment, through sweaters and underwear, before finally finding a pack jammed down into the side pocket of her suitcase. He puts it in his pocket, takes her lighter, too, just in case. You're mean, his mother says. I'll see you in the morning, he tells her, and closes the door behind him. He is exhausted. He doesn't know how he will survive the next week. Physically, it seems impossible. He pads down the hall to his room. Inside, he brushes his teeth, washes his face. He is practically asleep on his feet. But looking at the bed, he feels too wound up to lie down, so he steps out onto the balcony. The patio below is empty now, cleared of partiers so that the guests can sleep. There's only the faraway sound of traffic, the low whistle of the wind. Below him, the pool is lit from within, a dappling green glow, and beyond that, The lights of L.A. glitter hazy and mysterious. You don't have a cigarette, do you? Says a woman's voice from the next balcony. Scott turns. A young blonde is reclining in her beanbag chair, a glass of wine in one hand. As a matter of fact, says Scott, digging in his pocket. He leans over the rail, hands her his mother's cigarettes. Keep the pack, he tells her. You're a fucking lifesaver, says the girl. He takes out his mother's lighter, leans out. The woman bends over the rail of her balcony, cupping his hand with hers. She's twenty-one at the oldest, wearing jeans and a skimpy camisole. Her body is like a song. The flame dances against the tip of her cigarette. She inhales, exhales smoke. I'm Kelly, she says. Scott. Nice to meet you, Scott. Likewise. They stand for a moment in the quiet. Music from the lobby is a subtext of the dark. Scott risks a tiny smile. He doesn't want to read too much into it, but maybe this girl is his reward, the last-minute field goal that wins the game, snatching victory from the jaws of defeat. Scott takes a deep breath, lets it out. Long day? Kelly asks. You have no idea, he says. Kelly holds the cigarette between her thumb and middle finger, like a joint. So, says Scott, are you... A young, shirtless man comes out of Kelly's room onto the balcony. He is in boxer shorts. His stomach muscles are so well-defined, it looks like you could grate cheese on them. John, says Kelly. This is Scott. Scott, my boyfriend John. John nods at Scott. Hey, what's up? He says. Then to Kelly. Babe, I'm turning in. I gotta be at Fox by nine in the morning. She kisses him. Okay, baby, she says, taking his hand. Let's go to bed. Nice meeting you, she tells Scott, heading inside. You too. Their sliding door closes, followed by the curtains. Scott stands on the balcony, alone again. He thinks the two worst words in the English language are my boyfriend. He hears them all the time from women he meets. I'm here with my boyfriend. My boyfriend got me the tickets. I'm going to Italy with my boyfriend. At least with a husband, you know, the ring is a dead giveaway. But the girl with a boyfriend is like a submarine, stealthy. She's a game of Russian roulette. You never know if there's a bullet in the chamber. He pictures his mother in her room, pajamas on, Larry King on the TV. It's been fifteen minutes, but the minibar's probably open already, a glass of wine by the bed. He pictures her sitting there in the dark, lonely, afraid. He thinks of her, but all he can see is himself, old and abandoned, a stubble-faced old man in a dirty undershirt talking to his plants. He takes off his clothes, sits naked on the edge of the bed. The far wall is all mirrors, and he studies his reflection in the glass. He is losing weight. That much is clear. Maybe five pounds in the last two weeks. He keeps slipping his mind to eat. His body is hungry for something other than food. Connection. Meaning. Now would be the time to start doing sit-ups, take advantage of his heartbreak, and whip his body into shape. But the thought of it is exhausting. From the next room, the sound of John and Kelly having sex floats through the wall. It is subtle at first. A low hum of excited breathing. A vague physical shifting. Then Scott hears the sound of the bed moving. The steady thump, thump of the headboard against the wall. Words begin to penetrate. Kelly's voice. Oh, baby. Oh, yes. Don't stop. Scott lies back. Closes his eyes. His erection feels like a betrayal. Fucking perfect, he thinks for the last time today. Darkness descending, the world catching up with him, smothering him, dragging him down into sleep.